Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Sixty years. That's how long it had been since I'd seen him. Sixty years. So much had happened during those sixty years. After he died on the cross for our sins and after he rose from the grave, he had gathered us back together and he had taught us over 40 days and he had reminded us of all the things he had previously taught us and he also reminded us of what he expected of us while he was gone. He intended for us, without him, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And after he told us to do that right there before our very eyes, we saw him ascend first into the clouds and then higher up until he was gone. And then our eyes came back down to earth and we looked at each other and we wondered what in the world we'd gotten ourselves into. We didn't know any better. We went back to Jerusalem and gathered for prayer in the upper room. Uh, he had taught us to pray, and this seemed like a good time to pray because of all that lay before us. And so there we were in the upper room. Yeah, that's the upper room. You remember it, the same one that he had met with us in the night before he was betrayed and arrested and executed. There in the upper room, even though we had a sense that something was deeply troubling him, we were still arguing about which one of us was the greatest. <laughs> I thought I was. James thought he was. Peter was annoyed because he thought it was obvious that he was. And we were arguing. And one of the things we were arguing about was uh, about the lousy service in that upper room. We had come in and the servant had failed to wash our feet. And Jesus heard us arguing about who was the greatest and criticizing the servant that hadn't done their job. And he himself got up from the table with us and took up the basin and towel and one by one washed each of our feet. We were awestruck as he did that. And had we known what he was facing after that, we certainly would have served him rather than him serving us. And yet there he was washing our feet. And then he got up and he said, if I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you should, I've set you an example that you should wash one another's feet. And just like Jesus, to, instead of thinking about he, what he was about to face, think about making sure we were the right kind of leaders, servant leaders. And then he said, fellas, I give you a new command. You've heard all kinds of Old Testament verses about loving your neighbor and loving others for the sake of the Lord. But I want you to love one another as I have loved you. I want you to be the kind of people who will go into the world and meet the needs you see, like washing of feet, and instead of criticizing others for not meeting a need, to be the one to meet that need. 
he had thoroughly rebuked us, and somewhere in there, Judas went out and left us, and we were there in that upper room, and then he began to teach us some of the most wonderful things of all the times he taught us. He taught us there in that upper room. But then he talked about going away again. He had been talking about dying in Jerusalem, and now he was talking about going away again. And he said to us, fellas, <laughs> don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in the Father. Believe also in me. I'm going to go away, and you can't follow me. We thought we could, but we couldn't. We didn't even know what he was talking about. But he said, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you that then I'm going to come and get you, that where I am, you'll be also. And he taught us so many other wonderful things that night. I remember just at that upper room, leaning into him and wondering, how in the world would be able, we be able to go on without Jesus with us personally? Well, there in that prayer meeting, without him with us any longer, the answer had come. It was one of the most inspiring prayer meetings I've ever been in, men and women both pouring their heart out to God and praying to Him and trying to process what He meant about the power of the Holy Spirit that was about to come upon us, when suddenly what He had said would happen, happened. It was the day of Pentecost, and on that day, all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit came upon us, and each of us was able to speak a foreign language that previously we didn't understand. <laughs> All I knew was that I was uh, talking uh, vociferously about what Jesus had done for me and how he had changed me. Later I learned I was doing it in the Parthenian language. Uh, my brother James learned that he was speaking in the Elamite language. And later, Andrew learned that he, my old fishing buddy Andrew, he learned that he was speaking in the Median language. As we went out of that upper room and into the streets, all of a sudden, weary travelers who had come for the festival of Pentecost heard their own language, their home language being spoken. And what a sight it was as they wove through the crowd to come to the speaker speaking their language. And so a crowd of Parthians gathered before me and before the others, those other languages. And then Peter got all of our attention in one language, the common language, and, and, and he preached about Jesus. He reminded us what the prophets had said about Jesus and how just 50 days earlier at the time of the feast of the Passover, Jesus had been slaughtered, but not for his own sins. We were reminded of Isaiah 53, the great passage in the scroll that says, all we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all on him. And all of a sudden, as the Holy Spirit was working through Peter preaching, the massive Jewish crowd gathered there. Uh, <laughs> realized that each of them had complicity in the death of Jesus the Messiah for their sins. And they said, they cried out, what shall we do? And Peter said, you need to repent. You need to change your mind about Jesus, who he is, what he did for you on that day of the Passover, how he has died for your sins, but he rose from the dead. He's conquered the grave. You need to change your mind about him and turning to him rather than sticking with all the traditions of men that you've obscured the good news with. And that day, 3,000 precious souls believed in Jesus, and we baptized them as new believers, testifying publicly of the faith they now had. <laughs> On that day, that day of Pentecost, we went from a few hundred followers of Jesus Christ to a few thousand. And as the 
years passed, there were hundreds of more churches planted throughout the Roman Empire. There were hundreds of thousands of more people that turned to Christ. And just as Jesus had predicted, it would, this faith would start like a little mustard seed that turns into the biggest of trees. The faith would start small, but as we witnessed, the faith would grow and churches would be planted and peoples that had never heard the name before would hear the name of Jesus. And it had happened. It had happened. But oh, what a cost to the body of Christ for it to happen. As I speak to you, I am the last original apostle still alive. You know that shortly after all the events in Jerusalem there, we added deacons in to help assist the apostles and the elders in the work that they had to do there. And one of the bold young men that stepped forward to be a deacon was Stephen, and he was sharing the faith, and he was among some of his fellow Jews. And as he shared the faith, you know that later Paul was there. Paul and a gang had met him and stoned him to death there in Jerusalem. So he was the first martyr to die for the faith, the first of many. And thank God, God uses the blood of the martyrs to bring others to Christ because later even that Saul became Paul and he was saved. But the first apostle to die for the faith was my own dear brother, James. Herod, had him arrested to score some political points with the Sanhedrin. And because he saw it delighted them so to persecute these Jewish believers, he then had my brother executed with the sword there in Jerusalem. Jesus had told us that in the world we will have trouble, so take heart, he's overcome the world. And Paul later wrote that everyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We knew this world was not our home. Jesus had said, if they persecuted me, oh, how they'll persecute you. And if they did these things to the master, they'll certainly do them to the servants. But it's still incredibly hard when it's your brother who's been killed and your friends and co-workers who have been killed. And one by one, as the decades passed, I would get the sad news. Philip was crucified in Asia. Matthew was beheaded, <laughs> beheaded in Ethiopia. Mark was drugged through the streets of Alexandria until dead. Peter was crucified on an upside-down cross there in Rome by wicked Emperor Nero. Shortly after that, Paul was beheaded in Rome by the same wicked Emperor Nero who was trying to make th people think about anything but his own political failings. After that, my old fishing buddy Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross. His crime had been converting members of the emperor's household. After him, I remember getting the news that Thaddeus had been shot through with arrows, that Bartholomew had been flayed alive by pagan priests, that Thomas had been speared to death in India, and that Simon the Zealot had been sawn in two in Persia. Them and so many more martyrs for the faith, men and women of whom the world was not worthy. Over these past few years, God has brought me to Ephesus to serve among the pastors there. And because Ephesus is in such a tight-knit fellowship with the other churches there in Asia Minor, I will also go around and talk to the other churches there and encourage them. 
It is special for them, of course, when the last living apostle comes around and talks with them. And I delight in doing it. I delight to see the faith, how the faith is going to the next generation. And it won't be long. It can't be long. I'm getting older and older, and one day I won't be here. But the faith is alive and well. Despite these difficult days that we all live in, there are younger ones coming to Christ, and they're leading younger ones to Christ who are leading younger ones to Christ. And it's my great delight to see it all happen as I minister to the saints. I'm well aware that they are dealing with many things. There is idolatry and immorality all around them, and sometimes some of the converts slip back into those ways. Others, because of the fires of persecution, are growing weary in well-doing, and still others are in danger of losing their first love, their passion for Jesus to worship Him, and their passion to get the gospel to those who don't know of the Lord yet. And then it happened. Another empire-wide persecution like the one in the days of Nero, but this time it was Emperor Domitian. (sighs) You perhaps have heard about what happened in Pergamum, the dear brother Antipas there who was faithful unto death. He did not deny the faith when they told him to worship the emperor, and he too has now been executed And one by one, Domitian has sent his authorities around to the churches and have arrested the pastors and other outspoken Christians and has brought them here to this prison island of Patmos. And it doesn't matter that I'm the, how old I am now. As the last living apostle, I am public enemy number one. And so in the fullness of time, I too was arrested and brought to this awful place. It's just a rocky, ragged island jutting out in the Aegean Sea. It's filled with caves all around it. And it's got all these rocks. And every day as political prisoners, we're brought out to break the bigger rocks into smaller rocks. And then those rocks into pebbles. So those pebbles can be transported all over the Roman Empire so that Roman roads can be paved. Boy, the tyrants of the world love to do that with political prisoners. They love to use them to pave the roads or the Israelites building the pyramids back in the day or to use them to produce cheap sandals around the world. The brothers, pastors, are so discouraged. They look to me for comfort and hope, even as I look to the Lord for comfort and hope. But these are trying days with so many difficulties here in the empire. You know, as we're working the rocks, the brothers always ask me questions. They, they know their time with me is limited, and so they pepper me with questions. They'll ask all kinds of things. They'll say, John, what was it like to travel with Jesus? What was it like to see him heal the sick? And, and make body parts work that hadn't worked in a while or ever? What was it like to see him raise the dead? What was it like to see him walk on water and feed 5,000 people with a child's sack lunch? They asked John, what was it like to see Jesus on that cross dying and not being able to do anything about it? John, what was it like when the ladies reported that the angels had said he's not there and he wasn't there, that he had risen? 
What was it like to go and see that empty tomb? What was it like to see Jesus risen from the dead and uh, talking to you again before he ascended to heaven? They asked, John, what was it like to be there on that day of Pentecost? What was it like to be there when Peter preached and all those people were saved? (laughs) They like to ask questions like, uh, John, how in the world did you baptize 3,000 people in one day? (laughs) Well, that one's easy. One believer at a time, the same way your church baptizes believers. But of all the questions they ask, There are two questions they ask more than any others. They say, John, does Jesus really care about what's happening during these days of difficulty for the Christians and the churches? They're looking for hope. And the second question they ask is, and John, is Jesus really going to come back for us one day and bring an end to sin as the prophet spoke about, and bring in everlasting righteousness like the prophet spoke about. Is he ever really going to do that? I was thinking about questions like that one Sunday morning, one Lord's Day. We have to deal with these rocks every day here on the island, but we still, as believers, worship the risen Lord. And so every Sunday, we do come together and celebrate Christ's resurrection from the dead, as the church has always done since he rose from the dead. And we instruct one another and encourage one another and exhort one another. And because I am John, the brothers have insisted that i be the one to bring them a message each and every Lord's Day. And so early on that Lord's Day, I went up to one of the higher points on the island here, up to Mount Elias there, to one of the caves that is cut out up there. And I began to pray and ask the Lord to give me a vision, uh, a word from Him, a word from one of the scriptural scrolls, that I could impart to and expound for the brothers down there working the rocks to bring them some hope and encouragement and maybe answer these questions that they had. As I was there, I couldn't help but think back to my own time again of walking with Jesus 60 years before. It had been a long time, but I really had seen him engage people so lovingly and heal them and forgive their sins and change their lives. And I'm here to tell you, Jesus had changed me as much as any old sinner. (laughs) I had gone from being an angry fisherman to a loving fisher of men. You know, he used to call James and I the Thunder Boys. We would hear about this that was going wrong in the empire and what this synagogue was doing or that one and we would say lord just bring judgment on that and especially when we would hear of those we would see those reject jesus that he had ministered to sometimes entire cities turned a blind eye toward him and we would say, Jesus, why don't we just call down fire on them for rejecting you, just like Elijah the prophet had done. And he would turn that hate toward love. He would turn that bitter spirit toward a spirit of forgiveness. He gave us inside the kind of love where we could love our enemies like he did. We could bless those who cursed us. We could do good to those who use us terribly. 
He had changed me so much. As I was in that cave that day, I couldn't help it. I, I began to weep as I thought about how much I missed him, how long it had been. As I thought about this weary body, you know, Peter wrote and Paul wrote about this body. It's just like a tent, and boy, is my tent getting flabby <laughs> and not as workable as it used to be, and I long to put it off and get that heavenly body and then later have the new body on the new earth like the prophets have talked about and like Paul wrote about to the Corinthians. Oh, I can't wait for those days, but there I was, and I recognized how sad our current situation was compared to what it's like in heaven and I missed I wanted to be with him I hated being in this body any longer and I longed to see my brother and my friends in heaven I couldn't help it I started to weep there in that cave thinking about such things but then I heard a loud voice behind me it was it was loud as a, a trumpet and, and it said write what you see and send it to the seven churches. And I turned in the cave to look, and there were seven golden lampstands in the cave, giving it some light, but in the middle of the lampstands, it was him. It had been 60 years, but it was him. Now, it was not. I did not see the one that I had walked with, the one that I had seen crucified and rise from the dead. Only once before, uh, did I see him look like I saw him look that day? And that was when he had taken James and um, uh, Peter and I, and we'd gone up to the mountain. Uh, later, we called it the Mount of Transfiguration because of what we saw there. But up there on the mountain, all of a sudden, Jesus was transformed before our very eyes, and we saw him as he appears in heaven. The only frame of reference I had for what I saw that day before the vision in the cave was from reading the scroll of the prophet Daniel who had talked about the Son of Man glorious in heaven riding on the clouds and coming to earth one day to reign and to rule over the entire world. That's, that's who I saw in the cave. His, his, his hair was white like snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. He represented all knowledge and understanding and, and wisdom. This was the all-knowing one. His feet were like mighty pillars, and when he spoke, it was like the sound of rushing waterfalls. And it made me think of him being the all-powerful one and how uh, authoritative he is when he spoke. And in his hands, he was holding seven stars even as he stood in the midst of the seven lampstands. And he, his countenance filled the cave with light as if it was the noonday sun. And, and I couldn't help it. As I saw him there, I dropped to my knees. I dropped to my knees because I, I was seeing God and I w wanted to worship him. And I, I didn't know what to do next. But, but then he put his right hand on my shoulder, and all of a sudden I felt the same as I did back there in the upper room when I had leaned into his chest. My God, my best friend, right there with me again. And he said to me there, he said, John, don't be afraid. <laughs> I am the Alpha and Omega. 
I am the first and the last. I was dead, but look, I am alive, and I'm alive forevermore. I, I hold in my hand the keys of death and Hades. John, I have another thing for you to do for me before you join me in heaven. I want you to write a letter for me. I want you to write that you've seen the one who was and is and is to come. And I have a message for each of my seven churches. And, and, and so I was ready to do that. He had not forgotten us was what he was saying. He was there with us. And, and then he said, John, you've written me a gospel and you've written me a letters. Now you're going to write about end times things for me. And it will be a great encouragement to the churches in Asia, but for all the other churches there are too. I have a message for each of the seven churches. And so I took up my pen to write for the Lord one more time. And he started with a message for the church in Ephesus, the one I was most aware of. But then he went on to the other churches of Asia. And those messages were so wonderful. It showed not only did he care, he was active and involved in everything the people within the churches were facing in the churches as a whole, and he had not forgotten us. Each of those letters started with him reminding us some more things about who he is, who he was who he is and who he will be. And I've often thought since hearing of those things that day that if a believer studied those things that he said about himself there, it would give them a much more powerful portrait when they enter their prayer closet and pray to the Lord. I'll never forget the things there he said about himself. And then he encouraged each church that he could. He, he couldn't do this for every church, but for each church he could. He told us something that we were doing that he was proud of us for doing that encouraged heaven as we were faithful to the Lord. Only then did he bring up anything that the churches needed to repent of. And I can tell you he knew what each and every church needed to repent of, just as he knows what each and every person hearing me speak now needs to repent of. And yet he loves those who are his own anyway. He desperately loved the churches of Asia there. And so after calling them to remember their testimony, to repent of any sin, and then return to the Lord and to service, return to their first love, their passion for Christ, and their passion for the gospel. After that, he spoke of the blessings that awaited all of the overcomers. And oh, the wonderful things he said. <laughs> to one church, he said that the tree of life awaits the overcomers, the tree of life that's in the paradise of God. To another, he talked about how the second death cannot harm. The lake of fire can never harm a true believer. And then he talked about how we'll be in the paradise of God, enjoying eternal life forever with the Lord. All those who are overcomers. My, my favorite one was he said that there's a day coming when he personally will give each overcomer a, a white stone with a name that's written on it that shares how he feels about that person's faith in him. And he's personally going to give that to every overcomer. I couldn't help but think about what the Holy Spirit had led me to write in the little letter that I had written that uh, this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. And so if a person is a believer in Jesus Christ, they are one of those overcomers and all those things await in the future. Oh, 
It was so, such a blessing to hear what Jesus was telling me to say to the churches. I couldn't wait to get out of the uh, cave mouth there and go down and preach those things to the brothers that day. But I felt his restraining hand say, there's more. I didn't see him after that, but I was transported in a vision. It's going to be hard for me to describe. I, I I was transported in a vision to heaven to the throne room of God. You may remember that Paul had talked about being caught up to the third heaven. This is the same place, the throne room of God, and yet Paul had been restrained in his day from writing about the things he had seen, and yet now the Lord was saying, it's time, the church needs to know these things, John, and so I'm going to allow you to write uh, about what you see. And I have to be honest with you, for some of the things I saw, I can only write what it was like that I saw because I had never seen anything like what I saw. And, and, and so I had to uh, say, say, say some descriptors. And, and uh, let me just tell you, if you've ever seen a beautiful sunset uh, and tried to communicate it to somebody else or a great waterfall and tried to communicate what you saw to somebody else, you really have to experience it for yourself. But fortunately, he'd already promised that every overcomer will experience it for themselves. But I saw the throne of God, and, and, and I saw this dazzlingly beautiful presence of the Lord on the throne. Radiant jasper and carnelian stone is the only way I can describe what I saw as I, as I looked on. And, and uh, around the throne of God was an emerald rainbow, one of the most beautiful rainbows I'd ever seen. In, in front of the throne, there was something like a sea of crystal glass. Uh, and, and as I looked at the throne every once in a while, I'd hear a, a, a loud burst of thunder, and before that, see a flash of lightning, lightning and thunder there. As I looked closer, I saw 24 elders uh, facing and worshiping toward the throne and worshiping the one on the throne. The, the ones on this side uh, seem to look like the elders, the tribal leaders of Israel. It it looked like what I've heard of Reuben and Simeon and and Judah and Benjamin. The other half of the elders looked something like the men that I'd walked with when I was a younger man. I I could almost promise you I I saw Peter there. Uh, And uh, the next to him was my brother James and and what he had looked like. And next to him, it it seemed to be a younger, more fit version of me. But but how could that be? As I was pondering that, I noticed that there were four living creatures, unlike any I'd ever seen before, four living creatures in the center of the throne area, and they had six wings. And they had eyes in the front and eyes in the back. And they were crying out a cry of worship, a song that they were singing. And they said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And every time they would start that song, the elders would then bow down, prostrate on the floor there and put their crowns before 
the Lord God Almighty. And they would sing a song, and they were worshiping God and thanking Him for being the wonderful, good, and great Creator of all. Heaven constantly was praising God for His wonderful creation and enjoying Him as Creator. As I looked closer at the one on the throne, I saw something in His hand. It was a scroll. And as I looked closer, I saw that there was writing on the inside and the outside of it. And it had seven seals on the scroll. Now, living in the Roman Empire, I knew what scrolls were for. And I knew what seals on the scrolls were for. An authority figure would send a message to be acted on by someone under his authority. And he would write it the message in the scroll, the message and the things to be acted on, and then he would take his ring and he would dip it in uh, the wax there and he'd put it on the letter to seal it shut and only the one that was authorized to open it could then open it. The most important scroll I had ever heard of only had four seals on it. Uh, only four. <laughs> That's a lot. It was the, the most I'd ever seen on earth. There, were, there was one for Caesar. There was one for the Roman Senate. There was one for the general of the army. And there was one for the governor of the province that these events were going to happen in. But this scroll had seven seals on it. Somehow this must be the most important message with the most important events to be acted on when the scroll was opened of any message the world had ever received. You know, sometimes the Holy Spirit brings things to mind uh, that you've read in the Scriptures, things to your remembrance, and I couldn't help but think about how the prophets had talked about how the Messiah would, at some point in the future, put an end to sin and then bring in everlasting righteousness. And as I was pondering whether that might be what the scroll is about, an angel proclaimed that no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able or worthy to open that scroll and make its events come to pass. And when I heard that, I just started weeping. I realized that if that scroll couldn't be opened and acted on, and the world was going to stay the way it is now. With all of its sin, all of its rebellion against God, all of the exploitation of people, all the broken promises in families and nations and the world. And I wept because I don't want the world to stay the way it is forever. Well, as I was weeping, all of a sudden, one of the elders, it, I have to be honest, it looked like my dumb brother, the one I fought with all the time growing up, it looked like he turned around and said, stop crying. The lamb who was slain is worthy to open the scroll. He's been victorious, and he can open the scroll. And I remembered looking back toward the throne and standing next to the throne, I, I saw him again. <laughs> it was Jesus. The one John the Baptist had said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He looked with that bloody robe that he had like the one that I had seen die on the cross for my sins and the sins of the world. 
(laughs) The elder was reminding me that the lamb who had suffered was also the lion who would conquer and rule. At his death, he had made possible salvation for all as the suffering servant, and he was going to come and open that scroll and be the conquering king. And as I understood that, and as it was being proclaimed, I noticed that the elders moved toward their stringed instruments, and they were tuning them up. They were obviously going to lead heaven in another praise song, and as they were tuning up, I I, I saw bowls of incense, and they had been lit, and like candles, the scent rises. That scent was rising toward the throne, but I saw something else in that moment rising toward the throne. I saw the words to prayers that I had prayed rising toward the throne. I saw the words of others around me. I saw their prayers rising toward the throne. I saw words from peoples I never had seen before in my life from all ethnicities on earth those prayers rising toward the throne. And they were prayers for the salvation of individuals. They were the prayers for cities to have revivals. They were the prayers for unreached peoples to come to know the Lord. All those prayers had been, had been saved and were rising toward the throne from all the earth's existence. And, and, and as they got there, the elders were ready and they led us in a song praising the Lamb for His redemption of people from every people group on earth. And as I looked, I suddenly saw on that sea of glass before the throne, I saw people, thousands of them, legions of them, myriads of them. I saw people of every color from every place on the planet. There they were worshiping and giving thanks for the redemption that the Lamb had provided. And I was so excited about that message. I could not wait to come out of the cave and bring that message down to the people now. I've been able to look into heaven, and I'm telling you what's there, where he's constantly being celebrated for his creation and redemption. But again, I was restrained from leaving the cave. What I saw next was horrifying. I should give you a little background. When I wrote my gospel... I didn't include something in it that Matthew and Mark and Luke put in their Gospels. I didn't write anything about the coming time of tribulation that the prophets had spoken about. Matthew, when he wrote his Gospel, he put two chapters in about it. Mostly the words of uh, the Lord Jesus uh, on the Mount of Olives. And, And Mark did the same thing, one long chapter about it. And Luke, when he wrote his gospel, again, one long chapter about the coming time of tribulation. I wrote my gospel after theirs, and I figured they had covered those things. And to be honest, I I don't like to talk a whole lot about prophecy. In my gospel, I focused in that if a sinner believes in Jesus, they'll get eternal life. If they receive Jesus, they'll become a child of God. I focused in on how 
dramatically Jesus had loved us and people of all ethnicities and how we should do the same thing in his name. I, I focused in on that if we abide in him and his words from the book and abide in us, then we can bear much fruit, but without him we can do nothing. Those are the things I wanted people to hear and to take away, and so I had put nothing about the coming time of the tribulation. Now, those of you who have read my little letter uh, that I wrote um, know that I have talked about the Antichrist who will rule during that time of the tribulation, and I also included that there's always an Antichrist spirit in the world that defies the living God. But I had written nothing about the time of the tribulation. The visions I saw next there in the cave wound up being 13 chapters in the book of Revelation that the Lord had me write. <laughs> 13 chapters. I wound up being by far the one to talk the most about prophecy, even though I had tried to avoid it. <laughs> Maybe the thing you least want to do for the Lord will become part of your testimony when you uh, let God work through you that way. Over the visions that came next, I saw the seals opened and one by one the events acted on. And then I saw trumpets blown and the events that they signified being acted on. And then bowls of wrath poured out. And with each judgment, it was increasingly severe on earth. Be uh, the, the seventh seal seemed to include everything that came after, and the seventh trumpet seemed to include everything that came after. And between the seals and the trumpets and the trumpets and the bowls, there seemed to be interludes where the visions I was given fit somewhere during the seven years of tribulation, like Daniel had spoken of, there being a 70th seven, a seven-year period with three and a half years and then three and a half years and the last three and a half years being particularly severe in judgments. Those interludes seemed to all fit somewhere in there, although it was not as clear to me uh, how that unfolds. But what is clear to me is that this was the coming time of tribulation, and it was clear to me that this was the time where God was judging the satanic world system in preparation for his return to earth. It, it also delighted me during that time to see so many of my fellow Jews finally turn to Jesus and receive him as Savior and be bold witnesses for him. And during that time, it delighted me to see so many others around the world also turned to Christ before it was too late. Um, this must be the best way that God had determined after thousands of years of earth history, seven short years to call Israel back to God and to call everyone on earth to a final decision about Christ. I have to be honest, it was bitter for me to hear many of these things and to process that inside. I was the one who had wrote, for God so loved the world. And it was so bitter for me inside to see so many on earth who no matter what was presented to them during this time, they, they would not repent. Instead, not only would they not repent, they were worshiping Satan during this time. And they were following the instructions of his antichrist world ruler and the false prophet of false religion that pointed people to worship so foully the wicked one. I, I, I thought about 
how insane that was. God was before them, wooing them one more time and many more times to come to Christ, and yet they were worshiping Satan instead. Well, folks, as the visions unfolded, I was transported back and forth between heaven and earth. And, and I have to tell you that heaven's perspective was so much different than the perspective on earth. As the judgments unfolded, earth... The sinners on earth were grieving the loss of their sin-based economy. They were grieving the destruction of their sinful casinos and, uh, where they gambled, and they were grieving the uh, loss of their sexual trafficking brothels and the, how they had exploited uh, men and women and boys and girls, and they were grieving the loss of the places where they fulfilled their addictives, uh, addictions that they had. And... Whenever someone on earth would turn to Christ and be saved, they would turn, the earth dwellers would turn on that person who had turned to Christ and persecuted them, and a good number of them they killed for their new faith in God. That's what was happening on earth. But in heaven, the saints in heaven were welcoming those tribulational martyrs into heaven to be there forever. And they continued praying. They were celebrating that God's judgment had finally come and that an end to sin was being made and that Christ was about to return. They were celebrating those things. And oh, how they celebrated when Babylon finally fell, that evil world system that is so anti-Christ. Heaven was celebrating when judgment to sinful ways and attitudes was finally brought to bear. Time fails me to tell you all the things I saw angels do during this time. They fought against the demons. One, one of my favorite visions I had was, you know, there was a time that Satan was the prince of the power of the air, but uh, I had a vision of when he was thrown to earth and could only be on earth during those last three and a half years. One of the visions was God telling Michael it's okay to go ahead and fight against Satan. And Michael whipped Satan and threw him to earth during that time. <laughs> you know, Satan, he figures that he is the head of a false trinity on par with God. But when Michael's allowed to, Michael himself can whip Satan. And that was such a powerful vision to see. Those angels also sealed and protected the 144,000 witnesses during this time. And they also somehow restrained weather so God's plan could unfold on earth. Oh, at the end of those visions, my, my head was swimming, but the Lord still had more for me to say, to see, and to say. And I remember, I think it's the one of the greatest announcements I've ever heard. I learned how great the announcement, it is finished, that Jesus made from the cross was. And of course, it was very exciting to hear the announcement, he is not here, he has risen, just as he said. But I saw a great multitude of saints in heaven proclaim with a loud voice at the end of that time of the tribulation, the marriage supper of the Lamb has now come. <laughs> and I thought back to the time in the upper room when Jesus had led us in the Lord's Supper. And he said, I won't partake of this wine again with you until I come fresh in my Father's kingdom. The time had now come. And all the saints had radiant garments on, not as dazzlingly white as his garments were, but they were all dazzlingly beautiful. But some were even more dazzling than others. And someone in heaven told me that the difference was 
the most dazzlingly white garments that the saints wore were those who really had done on earth what God could reward in heaven. The more they had prayed, the more they had witnessed, the more they had served, the more they had been committed to doing what God can reward, all the things he's told us he can reward, the bigger their reward was there in heaven. And it showed in the vibrant clothing that they wore. The next vision I had was seeing heaven opened. And I saw Jesus Christ come riding on a white horse out of heaven and behind him the saints of heaven also on white horses. On his robe it said, King of kings and Lord of lords. He always has the last word and he was coming to have the last word about sin on earth. But as he was riding down, I noticed that in the Holy Land, the all those on earth who had rejected Christ were gathered in the Holy Land under the leadership of that Antichrist and that false prophet, and they actually were foolish enough to think that they could take on the risen Lord, the Lord who was returning, the one coming back from heaven to earth, as the Son of Man prophecy had said from Daniel. And there he was riding on the clouds, and as the group below defied him openly, he spoke from his mouth. Just as he had spoken the world into creation in the early pages of Genesis, he said something like, drop dead, and they did. Their molecules left their body, and all of a sudden the Holy Land was filled with their flesh and with their blood. I had spoken of the marriage supper of the Lamb, but the prophets had spoken about another supper, this one on earth among those who defy the Lord. This one was of the vultures and the crows and the other birds of the air circling around and circling around and coming and dealing with the flesh and the blood of those who had defied the Lord. Well, I saw Jesus allow some angels to take uh, the Antichrist and the false prophet and put them in the lake of fire during, uh, right away then, where they would be forever and ever. I remember Jesus talking about the lake of fire before. He had said that God had created that place for the devil and his demons, that that is the only ones who ever needed to be there. Because of human sin in the world, all humans will be going there but he had acted in time by dying on the cross so humans would not have to go there. Any any person who turns in faith to God will not go to the lake of fire. They'll have their name written in the Lamb's book of life and they'll go to heaven and later live on a new earth instead. But after that battle, I also saw Jesus grab Satan and throw him into the abyss with the other demons for a thousand years. And Christ and his saints reigned from Jerusalem over a nearly perfect earth for a thousand years. It was the ultimate holy land experience. The nations would come up and see uh, the temple and the festivals and it was always so wonderful to see and make all the connections between things in the Old Testament and the things we as apostles had written about. Uh, It was nearly perfect life on earth. But that thousand years did come to an end, and for God's own sovereign reasons, Satan was allowed to come and make one more battle against the saints. He was released from the abyss. The demons came with him, and apparently not all of those who lived during that thousand years had inwardly worshipped Jesus. They had to outwardly. There was no outward sin during that time, but those whose hearts were still in rebellion against God 
joined with Satan and came and circled the city for one final battle. But heaven came, fire came from heaven and destroyed them. And then Satan was thrown into the lake of fire where he'll be forever and ever. Oh, it was so wonderful to see him confined there. But that led to the next thing, the thing the prophets had talked about from the earliest days, the great white throne judgment. Humanity stood before God on the great white throne there that came down from heaven. And I believe we were all there, but there was no judgment for any of the saints. We were just present there. And the books of the deeds were opened, the deeds that sinners had done. And it was made clear that anyone written in the Lamb's book of life because they had faith in Jesus was not being judged here. Instead, their sins had all been judged by Jesus. There was nothing in the book to report in any punitive way. But for all those who had trusted in themselves or in something other than Jesus for salvation, everything was being brought out there. And then all of those who had trusted in something other than Jesus for salvation were rightly and justly put into the lake of fire, even though if they had turned to Jesus, they would not have had to go there. But since they remained rebels against heaven, that's where they wound up. It broke my heart because I'm St. John the Evangelist. I wanted to see people come to know Christ and in my lifetime, we had seen so many preached opportunities for people to turn to Jesus and live. And during this time of tribulation, there had been so many times to turn to Jesus and live. They still lived in rebellion against God. Then I saw the new heaven and the new earth, the ones that the prophets had talked about, and the new Jerusalem, the place Jesus had been working on for all these years. And I saw God living with redeemed humanity on that planet in that perfect city for all eternity. It was breathtaking beyond compare to see. You, you can read about it in the book that I've written, or at least what I got to see about it there. But a perfect God was with his perfected people on a perfect earth. It was also great what wasn't there. There was no Satan. There was no sin. There was no disease, none of these cancers uh, that are developing here in the empire. There was no pestilences, no viruses like the one sweeping through the empire now. There was none of that. Instead, perfected people in a perfected body forever and ever with the perfect God. And that's where the visions ended. But remember... I'm the one that wrote John 3.16. And with every bit of love in my heart, I want to communicate to everyone who hears me today that God loved you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for your sins, to deal with your sins in the only way that could be acceptable to a holy God. And if you believe in Jesus, you will not perish, but you'll have instead eternal life. If you receive him, you can become a child of God. Some of you feel that tug on your heart now to give your life to Jesus and receive his salvation. That's the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is bidding you to come to Jesus and live. And, and these ones that you're gathered with here today in this church family, 
That's the bride of Christ. And, and the bride of Christ is bidding you to come to Jesus today and live forever. Lord Jesus, you have been so kind to this earth. Thank you for leaving heaven's comforts the first time in dealing with our sin on the cross. You are truly the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world for those who believe in you. And Lord, we're told that you are the Lion of the tribe of Judah who one day will come and put an end to sin and bring in everlasting righteousness. Lord, you have given this world so many opportunities to repent. We don't ask for more. We ask you to come back as soon as possible and bring heaven to earth. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And as I leave you, let me tell you, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all until hopefully we meet again. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.